exciting year oh I guess I have in some ways yeah I sort of try to take it day by day but I suppose it's been exciting oh it has been exciting you <laughs> you, you were hugely successful in the effort to crowdfund your album oh vertigo were you convinced that it would work or did you have some doubts about you know what if they don't cough up for it what if they don't support it no, I had a pretty good feeling about it, actually. I'd seen people I admire, you know, people like Amanda Palmer and Ben Folds 5 do it to great success. And, you know, although I'm I'm a lot smaller than them in terms of fan base, I suspected that I had the kinds of fans that would get behind it. You know, they're, they're quite devoted and, and passionate and engaged on, on Facebook and stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't really have... Um, any major doubts, but I, I never anticipated it would be so successful um, so quickly. You know, we reached the target in three days, which was um, which was a record for Australia, and yeah, that that was overwhelming. So, what does that enable you to do when something like that is so successful that you've got some left over? Obviously, it means you know, hey, you might actually be able to make a living as a musician for a change. But what else <laughs> does it enable you to do? Well, basically, I I was able to make a record on the same budget as I ever had on a major label, which is kind of a miracle, I think. And it's something that wouldn't have been possible even five years ago. It's it's a very recent development. And um, I just sort of got to ride that wave. I mean, who knows where the music world's going to be in two years, things will probably be completely different again. But yeah, it meant I got to spend seven luxurious weeks in the studio. And I got to try to realise my vision, I guess, and, and nothing was rushed. And I got to use one of the best mixers in the world, Chenzo Townsend, who, you know, mixes Florence and the Machine and, and some of the biggest bands in the world. And uh, I got it as, as close, sounding as close to, to what I imagined as possible. At the Colombian coffee stand Jimmy imitated the barista He sounded nothing like the man I said, Jimmy, don't embarrass me I don't want to display Everybody's staring, see I'm just not in the mood today He said, what you, what you, what you, what you don't know Is that I have a soul full of guns What you, what you, what you, what you don't know Is that I Soul full of guns And he does mm-hmm. 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 
says the bus I'm catching. He says I'm up, that's just not true. Like going to karaoke, you can listen to me sing. Da 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 I'm a control freak um, and partly because I just felt I could and I've, I always found it frustrating, you know, having to deal with other people's timelines or I, I don't know, I just I wanted to streamline the process basically, it, it, take away the middleman. Is it more than timelines though? Is it also about, you know, if you're working with a record company and all of the good things and bad things that come with that, that you have to compromise your music and your choices at all? I, I never felt I had to compromise my music. I mean, obviously there was that slight pressure and expectation there that there'd be a radio single, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I, I can't deny that that was a liberating feeling to sort of have that off my back. But having said that, there are a lot of great things about record labels as well. You know, they have money, they have a building full of people um, that are going to work really hard to sort of get your album out there. Mm. I just felt like I'd reached the stage in my career where I didn't need that building full of people anymore. I just wanted maybe two or three people who really cared, people that I could call and speak to on the phone every day and turn it into sort of, yeah, a little cottage industry. I had a dream Then the dream had a dream And then the dream had me I was lucid, I was free My heart My brain My body My head My voice My blood My lungs My 
is Kate Miller-Heidke here on 12.33 ABC Newcastle. You've just mentioned that whole support system that comes with a record company and, and the support of a label and distributors and so on. Did it make your life harder to do it yourself? Was was there a lot more work in it for you or were you still able to employ assistance to take some of the pressure off? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've got a publicist, which helps a lot, but it has been a lot more work. Definitely. Um, just, you know, the crowdfunding, the pledge campaign in itself. I've been doing lounge room gigs around the country and writing out hundreds of lyric sheets and recording covers that people have requested. And just even all that stuff has taken me months and months. But it's been a lot of fun and, uh, and very rewarding in a way just to, to have that unprecedented 
um, level of access to my fans. It's been kind of exciting. My guest is Kate Miller-Heidke here on 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Last time we spoke was about the time that you were heading to or had just come back from working in London uh, and working on an opera, which in itself must have been a wonderful experience. It was, yeah. It's um, I, I kind of think of it as though it was a chance for me to take a holiday from myself, you know, because I talk about myself so much. I, <laughs> uh, as part of my job, obviously, I try not to do it all the time. Um, and I, uh, my music is there's so much of myself in my music and and touring and you know the success and failure of things. Um, are sort of on my shoulders to a certain degree. And so getting to be part of a big cast, part of this, yeah, big machine that that is a high production level show. Um, it was at the Coliseum in London. That, yeah, it felt like getting to sort of just take a break. Um, and, and, and it was creatively and intellectually challenging um, and it was a period of growth for me. And I'm, I'm getting to reprise my role 
in that same production later this year at the Met in New York, um, which is, yeah, going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That will be so exciting. And the piece is uh, The Death of Klinghoffer by John Adams, which at the time of its release was incredibly controversial. Does it remain so? I think uh, their publicity team hopes so. (laughs) So If there's someone protesting outside, it makes the news, so it's quite good for ticket sales. But, look, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I think you're referring to um, the outrage felt by some Jewish communities at the fact that this opera really humanises Palestinian terrorists who take over a cruise ship. And, yeah, you get to sort of hear their story and their voice. And all based on a true, terrible true story. That's right. That's right. Uh, I think it's it still carries a very potent current message. This is a an opera which goes right to the heart of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It just happens that in this case, an extraordinary composer and an extraordinary librettist decided to respond to the hijacking of a luxury ship. There's a conversation in the middle of the opera where the captain of the ship that's been hijacked says to one of the hijackers, if you could talk like this, sitting among your enemies, then peace would come. 24 hours into the hijack, all passengers are believed to be safe. The phrase, the death of Klinghoffer, at the time was something you would find in every newspaper all over the world. And it opened up, if you like, an incredible resonance in that Palestinian-Israeli conflict. If there are people who do not want to hear anything which reflects badly on either side of this conflict, what I would say to them, what I would say to you, is, if you're that person, is... Give the composer, give the librettist the space to explore that conflict and both sides of it across the whole evening. Because in the end, it is, I think, powerfully even-handed. But in order to be so, it's very vivid in allowing its characters to express their side of the argument. And I think that's how we understand things. And I think that we understand more about that conflict and other conflicts by trusting the instincts of Alice Goodman as librettist and John Adams as composer in response to those events.
Kate, I, I think listening to uh, an interview that you had done a few months ago talking about the Overtigo album and the tracks on that, and uh, you said about one of the tracks on there that, you know, this is r- the only re- one that in which I really use an operatic voice. It must be a real pleasure to be able to skip between these different musical worlds and different musical experiences as a performer. Yeah, I I do feel quite lucky, actually. And, I, you know, after I finished my degree at the Con in classical singing and then I got a record deal, I was like, that's it, I'm done with opera. You know, <laughs> it's boring, it's stuffy, it's for old people. I'm a songwriter and I need to express myself, you know. And as I get older, it's just so happened that I, I don't know how this happened. I feel like a fraud or I just stumbled into these amazing opportunities to do really interesting modern classical work and yeah, it's it's so mind expanding for me. It's really awesome. I'm actually writing an opera slash musical at the moment too for Opera Australia that's going to open next year. Um, and I'm sort of completely absorbed in that world and getting to write from the perspective of other characters. Again, you know, as I said, it's it's like taking a holiday from myself. What's it about? Are you going to tell? It's uh, it's based on a book by Sean Tan called The Rabbits. It's about colonialism in Australia. I have these dreams and I where there is no through the you see this
Kate Miller-Heidke joins me here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle and talking about the tour that will bring you to Newcastle in uh, in August, as you mentioned, Newcastle City Hall. The last tour, uh, you were heading through some churches and cathedrals and sacred spaces, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. The Heavenly Sounds tour. What was the most extraordinary experience of doing that? I think about Newcastle Cathedral and just think about how incredible some of those buildings and spaces are to be in, particularly when you bring music into them. They're they're quite extraordinary. Yeah. um, Look, it was a very special tour. I think one of the things, I mean, I I, I truly believe that architecture um, and live performance are more linked than perhaps people think about consciously and your experience as an audience member is so informed by just the room that you're sitting in. And same for the performer. Um, and there was there was something sort of sacred. You could see that the audience sort of felt differently than how they would feel in a theatre. And, I, I mean, personally, I, I'm not religious at all. I was told I wasn't allowed to swear during the gigs. And, well, there were a few songs of mine that were a bit too blasphemous to fly, so I wasn't allowed to – I sort oh, of had no. to change my – my set list a bit. Um, <laughs> Some well, I, well-loved I, Facebook favourites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a few songs about God that, yeah, they they didn't make the cut. Uh-huh. But I, I do feel for me like the closest I get to a spiritual experience is live art. I don't know, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, um, but those the, that's the most transcendent thing that I experience as an audience member and and you know, moments on stage when I'm performing myself, that when you just feel that you're part of something bigger than yourself or you're channeling something more in the moment than you ever are usually. Um, So I think that that's why those concerts work so well. They say everyone should have their heart broken at least once, but that is how you grow emotionally. Well, I have been misused by many, many, many men But nothing can compare with how you treated me At times it really felt as though the pain was here to stay And though it's several years ago, I feel it to this day And now Which member of the Beatles or which 1950s movie? 
all right, don't give a toss If you're a ninja or a pirate I suspect you'd be a pirate But I don't want to verify it And I don't give a What your stripper name is Or if your kitty had a litter Look, just follow me on Twitter I don't care about your family tree And I certainly don't want you Friends of mine who are orchestral players have always said that about the difference between uh, performing solo or, or with, you know, a quartet or something compared to an orchestra like the SSO or something in full flight, that it's being part of a machine that sounds extraordinary, that is uh, quite an amazing trip. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of both ends of, this, of the spectrum, really, because yeah, there's something so powerful about, yeah, it's like the machine, you say, or riding in a jet plane or whatever. And then when I tour, you know, I'm I'm touring as a trio. So when we come to Newcastle, it's me, Kier on acoustic, and I've got this amazing violinist slash multi-instrumentalist freak genius dude who tours with us. <laughs> I, I love the freedom that comes with that too, you know. it's um You can really change things up and play with silence and play with with dynamics and so yeah there's something great about that as well. Kate Miller-Heidke joining me here on 1233 you mentioned the word transcendence and uh, it was just last week that you were performing at the Sydney Opera House during the Vivid Festival and I think once you get over the terrifying crowds that accompany Vivid if you can just let yourself go with how beautiful it is uh, it is one of those amazing experiences what was it like to play? Oh, look, it was, you know, it was it was gorgeous and it felt like a real milestone. I think every musician, they'd be lying if they didn't say it is a lifetime ambition to get to headline a show at the Opera House and the, the theatre is, yeah, so gorgeous and there's something special in the air during Vivid. And it's funny, you, you mentioned the crowds, but I mean, compared to White Nights in Melbourne, Vivid's very civilised and approachable. That's scary. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 love, I love Vivid. Um, I'm a big fan and it was an honour to get to play there. There was a man by whom I There were three too many but you were not with me. I want things back the way they were. I want things back the way they were. I want to roar. I want to roar. 
this year you've got this tour which is substantial and it looks like um, right throughout August by the time you get to the end of it you might be ready for a nap but there's the rest of the year coming so what do you have in store? Straight after the tour in Australia finishes um, I'm off to play uh, three or four dates in the UK and then um, then I'm off to the Met for a couple of months to do the opera. In New York? Yes. What are you looking forward to about that and how do you think that that will differ from working in London? I've never got gotten to spend such an extended period of time in New York, particularly in Manhattan. There's just something really distinctive about the energy there. Can sort of carries you aloft. At first, when I when I went to New York, I found it quite claustrophobic, and everybody spoke so loudly, and I couldn't get a good coffee, and <laughs> I just I couldn't get everything stank. But I've I've really learned to love it over the years so I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of that feeling when you get to work in a foreign city you get to feel like you belong there you're not just a tourist you're part of what makes that city tick that's that's awesome so you're there for a couple of months and therefore able to immerse yourself not just in the city but in the company that you're working with too yeah exactly and um and opera singers have this brilliantly luxurious performance schedule because they have to look after their voice so there's only one show every three nights or something. So that's amazingly, yeah, luxurious I, for me. I look forward to seeing some amazing stories and photographs coming out on Twitter <laughs> in between performances. I, I dare say that's likely to happen. <laughs> yes. Kate, as a, a, a younger woman or even a girl when you were still at school, at what point did you decide that you wanted to sing, that you had to sing? I guess it was never a conscious decision. It was just always something that I did. I 
loved the sound of my own voice um, more than anyone around me. <laughs> they, uh, I did yet yeah, tend to irritate people a lot. I think I, I never shut up. But I, it, they do say that singing is a physically pleasurable activity. Yeah. So I just, I just did it. I never des- decided to do it. I did it, and I loved. But you know, my mother encouraged me, and she bought bought a piano and you know we had all of the old musicals on video Annie and West Side Story and Chorus Line and I used to watch all those every weekend and and it was just a yeah a love that was already inside of me. I fear that perhaps we don't encourage our kids enough or that there is still you know a little bit uh, if if you are a child who is going to be a little bit different who is going to be musical um, or an artist of any sort really that you're sticking your head up above a parapet that makes it ripe for a kicking do do you think we're still doing that to our kids to our young people? And, and therefore perhaps preventing them from pursuing what really should be their career. I don't know because I don't have any kids. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really up with like what people are doing to their kids nowadays. Um, so I, I can't say. I, I can only just speak for, for my own parents. I remember my dad said, Kate, you've got five years to give this a shot, you know, and after you've got to go and do something serious at university. Got to get a real and, job. Um, yeah. <laughs> And luckily, you know, within five years, there, there was enough going on that um, I didn't. I probably wouldn't have done what he said anyway. But you know, it was nice that he. <laughs> but my and my mother was always hugely supportive. She she's a big fan of the arts, and um, she's always got a stack of you know theatre tickets on her on her kitchen table. And yeah, I I never. I guess so. There's something about Brisbane that's a bit sort of small town and. Um, it's a double-edged sword growing up in Brisbane because mm. in, in a way it's great because there's no one there who makes important decisions in music. So you're sort of free to stumble and make mistakes and, and grow and become quite good before you ever head down south. But at the same time, there's something very sort of insular about Brisbane and that what you think you're good, do you? You think you're good, yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's world shrinking a little bit. Sometimes I think a lot of people have that great fear that, you know, they can sing or they can paint or they can write or they can whatever, uh, but they dare not for the criticism. And I, I noticed with great joy uh, the response to your friend, Megan Washington, another wonderful uh, Australian performer at TEDx in Sydney recently, uh, talking about growing up with a stutter. And I just thought, oh, Talk about gutsy, not just talking about it on that day, but also making that decision that, you know what, I'm still going to be this version of me. Yeah. Oh, I told her to start milking that stutter thing years ago. I knew people would love it. I can't believe it's taken her this long. You're going to be working that for all it's worth, Megan. God, yeah. It's just brilliant. It's a great hook. Um, it take it takes courage though. Where do you think or in in what area has your particular courage been? Oh. <laughs> well, I don't, I mean a lot of people talk about uh, talent and a life of creativity and they say that actually talent is only a small part of it and a lot of it comes down to grit and perseverance and a certain level of denial about what's realistic um yeah. and just to go, you know, stuff all that. This is what I want to do. And a thick skin. Um, yeah, a thick skin. I mean, that's. I don't. I don't really think I have that. <laughs> no. I think my my biggest, you know, thing it over recent years, I just feel like I've kind of come to terms with who I am and my own creative 
DNA and what I get a kick out of and it's not necessarily mainstream pop songwriting or any of that stuff. Um, I'm just sort of following my own muse or trying to. Well, certainly from my observations, Kate, that everybody who enjoys your music is enjoying every little diversion that you take them on. Oh. Well, that yeah, that says, says a lot about um, about those people. And I, I do think my audiences are quite musically literate and sensitive and responsive and they tend to be great people, so I'm very lucky. What does Kate Miller-Heidke dream about? Oh. Keep it nice. Well... <laughs> Do, oh, do you mean literally what my dreams at night? No, what are oh. your dreams? What what haven't you done that you must do? I really uh, want to write a hit musical. That's big for me. And I'm sort of, I'm writing this children's opera, which I mentioned before, and really immersing myself in that experience and kind of feels like I'm discovering new parts of myself, which is a very energising kind of way to to be so yeah um but what i dream about i'd love to write a hit musical i'd love to do more things in the theater and maybe one day be the artistic director of a, a great festival or something that's my that's my dream i bless the day i found you i want to stay around Let it be me.
my guest is Kate Miller-Heidke here on 12.33 ABC Newcastle. And as of this point, halfway through 2014, in what is surely just the start of a long and wonderful career, what are you most proud of today? Oh, I don't know. I, I oh, go on. You can think say. too much about that. <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't, um, I, I try not to sort of reflect on that stuff. I get, I can get very self-referential and I, I actually, I'm, I, I, I don't feel like truly proud of anything. I all I see is the things I regret and the things I would do differently, and I think that's what continues to fuel the fire in a way. It's like a lot of art. I think is about problem solving, and there's so many things I, I want to do better. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous. And I can't relax I can't sleep Cause my bed's on fire
Kate Miller-Heidke, it's been wonderful to have the chance to speak with you again. Thank you for uh, being so generous with your time, which you are. People can follow you on Twitter as well. And I note that you often, when you have time, you will engage with anybody far and wide. And uh, it's, it's a real joy. So thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Always love speaking with you, Carol. Thanks so much for having me.